This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You are listening to The Humane Podcast. Humane is your first look at the startups and industry titans that are leading and disrupting artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education. I am your host, David Jakobovich, and you are listening to Humane. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Now, on to the show. Listeners, thanks for joining us back at the Humane Podcast. Today, we have a special guest. This is Salima Vellani. She works in innovation and is a founder. She's very much involved in the innovation economy, the design thinking economy, and helping technical individuals, whether they're in software engineering, human-centered design, or data science, applying design thinking to their workflows. She's a new author coming out with an exciting new book in the next few months. And today we're going to learn about how we can humanize processes with design thinking. Salima, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, as you know, the technical world is always evolving every single day. And as we move into a remote culture and an in-person culture, one thing we've seen a lot is how do we humanize processes and how do we apply design thinking? Just a couple of years ago, design thinking was not something people would think about in data science. But today, when you're working technical, it's one of the first things that happens. How do you be private and ethical and responsible and transparent? There's so much to unpack. But, you know, before we go technical, before we dive in deep, I want to hear about your story around innovation and design thinking. Yeah, sure. So it's so interesting. Design thinking has really blown up, uh, both in the technical world as well as in a lot of, especially in a lot of traditional or non-technical industries. And how I got started was really, that's basically the story of my life. That's basically how I've always lived uh, since I was 21 years old and uh, was a volunteer in Brazil to start up this. I got tasked to start up this language school when I went down to Rio de Janeiro after college when I couldn't find a job. And it was interesting because I was embracing a lot of the principles and the actual design thinking process, which we don't always have to follow 
the exact process step by step. You know, it is about iterations and um, cycles. And so, but basically it was really about understanding a problem. And that's something that is, you know, we talk about customer development, we talk about lean startup and, you know, all these different methodologies and then now design thinking is really big, but really understanding who you're solving a problem for is important. And the way it started was really with the language school, understanding who are potential customers, what's the problem we need to solve. And it's funny because we started out teaching a bunch of languages. And this was actually a nonprofit at the time. Now it's a social enterprise. And now it's actually the number one uh, language school in Brazil and has won multiple awards. But at the time, it was this little tiny language school in an office space. And we were just like, hmm, what can we do? Let's teach languages. We were a bunch of volunteers. Really, let's teach the languages that we know. We targeted everything, Brazilians, uh, foreigners, and we were just doing everything. And then we realized very quickly that, hey, you know, if we're targeting everything, we're not going to be able to scale this up because we started seeing that there were a lot of different demands from students. Uh, there were different, different levels of languages with students, and it was becoming really hard to have no-shows or group classes that were becoming private classes because other students weren't showing up. And we realized... We need a really niche. We need to really carve our own niche and focus on what was working. And we realized the problem was that there were a lot of people coming to Brazil, foreigners, that needed to learn Portuguese. They wanted to learn Portuguese. And they were really passionate about supporting the orphanage or, or doing something related to a social cause. And we identified that problem. We dig deeper. We talked to these customers. We talked to, we interviewed a bunch of people and realized that that would be our niche. And when we focused on that, the business really took off. And that's basically what happened with other businesses that I've done. But it was just a very simple example of really understanding the problem. And we eliminated all the other languages. We stopped targeting Brazilians and we focused on Portuguese for foreigners. And basically it blew up from there, which is pretty cool. And that's, that's like the very, very, I'd say like the roots of my career. Que bonissimo. So excellent. Uh, and obrigado for everyone listening from South America here today. You know, it's so interesting what you just shared, Salimi, is how incredible it is that businesses are not just about technical, but they're about business models. I've had a lot of these conversations recently about how do you scale businesses? And everyone thinks you need the best software, the best technology, but often it's how do you think about your customers and your clients? And in this story you were sharing in Brazil, you know, you were very focused on one niche. And then when you were willing to step back and and see from a different angle, you discovered new opportunities. And then that generated a lot of success. I wonder how we can translate that to the tech economy today with startups and with companies looking to scale. Yeah. So I'd say that the skill of being able to think like a designer, now that doesn't mean everyone needs to become a design thinking expert or an innovation expert, but just the skill of being able to connect dots that seem unrelated. And that's, you know, that's also referred to as associative thinking. There's different you know, theories around this, but really trying to connect things uh, that already exist in new ways. I think that ability to think that way is one of the skills that's going to be really important for the future of work. We already are in the future of work. So I'd say we already see, we're already, you know, even just my company, we're already helping a lot of companies with upskilling or reskilling their employees. We're in the middle of this reskilling revolution right now, as uh, stated by the World Economic Forum. And it's just really important to be able to think that way to solve problems. It's, it can be hard to quantify or, or understand what are the direct results from that. But embedding that in the culture of an organization is becoming increasingly important. 
So thinking about the reskill revolution, I love education. And today I spend a lot of my time training and, and helping both technical individuals and non-technical individuals get to the next level. What do you think is missing today? I mean, everyone says they need to learn. They want to learn new skills, whether it's Python, they want to learn agile, they want to learn design thinking. I mean, how can we together as a society better solve the reskilling gap? Yeah, I think it starts with the individual, which is actually what my book is about. Innovation starts with I. It starts with I and the mindset and developing that innovative, you know, the innovative way of thinking and being able to unleash your creativity and really just knowing yourself, knowing your sweet spot. What do you do or what can you offer to the world that like a patent, like that's non-obvious, concrete and novel. And thinking about those things is, is really important. But Innovation actually happens with other people. It starts with I and it happens with others, with teams, with organizations, with communities, with the people around you and and really understanding who are the stakeholders that you need to really understand when you're solving a problem and then making your impact on the world through that. And so, yeah, I think that with um, more and more, you know, with technical fields, it's really important to to be able to understand and use empathy, which is a skill that's not just about putting yourself in someone else's shoes. It's really about taking that down to first understanding yourself and who are you and that ability to make things more humane and and understand humans really starts by understanding yourself. I love how you said that innovation starts with I and understanding yourself, especially when you're a technical individual, often ends up being about the code, but it doesn't have to be. You and I got to speak offline about design thinking for data science, and I have a new uh, medium publication on these five steps of design thinking that has been taking up a lot of my thoughts lately on how to improve data science workflows. And to help data scientists be more effective in industry, I've learned that it's not just about solving code, but it's about who you work with. How do you communicate? What processes can you do together? And uh, really, I said, we can make it super simple. Really, there's five steps of the data science workflow. I call them data collecting, data refinement, data expansion, data learning, and data maintenance. Basically, an end-to-end workflow. But there's a lot more than that. I think similar to what you've shared, it's about starting with I. So you ask yourself questions like, who can help me manage data? When can data be updated? Where is my data stored? How large is the data? What quantity and quality do I need? And why is this relevant? And there's many more questions than that, but I really dive deep into the who, what, when, where, why, and how, because it starts with I. You have to ask yourself questions and see the big picture and not get stuck just in the minutia of working with code. So that's a little bit of what I'm working on with these five steps to design thinking for data science. What do you think about how you can start with I, not only with data scientists, but across all fields? Yeah, so just to elaborate on what you were talking about, you know, we have a lot of people that are, like data science is a a trending career right now. There's a shortage of data scientists in the world. So it's a career that is gonna be increasingly in demand. And we also have a lot of inexperienced data scientists in the world because there's a lot of people that have just started out their careers. And sometimes the way that we're trained in these technical careers is really beginning with the mindset of what's available, what data do we have available? And when we do that, and just myself being a researcher and, and you know, I was trained as an economist, was, you know, what's available? What do we have? Uh, what have we done in the past? And it can be really hard to uncover meaningful insights when we're just thinking about what data is available but the design thinking mindset can be applied in data scientists, with data science and data scientists, because they can actually, 
work backwards to understand like what are the questions that we need to be asking? What questions would be strategically valuable to focus or research on? And so I think being able to question that and using design thinking principles, whether it's you know starting from empathy to really framing the problem. And that's one of the hardest parts of design thinking is being able to frame the problem correctly, because oftentimes we're thinking about the solutions without really understanding the problem. That's right. Data scientists are always thinking, how do I automate this? How do I build this dashboard? How do I deploy this model? But we can look back even at software engineering. In the last 10 to 15 years, software engineering went through a design thinking evolution where no longer was it just, let me build a feature, let me update a feature, let me get a product to a better steady state. But as we all know, the world got introduced to Agile and Agile frameworks where um, I noticed, you know, even today, there's sticky notes that are everywhere in the agile space. And we're able to get concrete in the real world to translate how solutions should be solved for problems. You know, I think it's really all about an innovation mindset. And uh, I know you're coming out with a new book this year around innovation, around digital transformation. And you got to speak to some pretty influential people out there in the industry. What are some of these insights that you've uncovered? Yeah, so I decided to do over 100, conduct over 100 interviews for my book because I realized that, first of all, writing a book, I knew it was going to be hard. I knew it was going to take long, but it was harder and it took longer than I thought. And I realized I I wanted to go beyond myself because, I mean, I have my story, I have my insights, but I thought that including other people, like really being inclusive in that process and applying what I'm all about with inclusion, I, I just decided to do that. And I realized actually by doing that, and this is something else I talk about, oftentimes our passion is discovered, is developed, not discovered. And you do that by actually just doing stuff and implementing and and taking action. And so I did these 100 interviews. And one of my interviews was with Alex Osterwalder. Some of you don't know, he's the guy in Switzerland that created the business model canvas and wrote books such as business model generation and talks about business value proposition and all these different tools and things that he creates, a lot of canvases. And um, one of the insights I picked up from that was that, you know, most companies are at least 10 years behind in innovation. And it's super important uh, just with where we are in the world right now, we're entering the fourth industrial revolution. As we talked about, we're in this reskilling revolution and a lot of businesses are, are stalling and they're falling behind. Or sometimes it's hard to even see that you're stalling when you're so focused inside of the business and not on the business to develop that awareness until it's too late and you've been replaced or you've been automated. I've experienced that myself with uh, one of my companies. Uh, We exited right on time with the online translation business, but Google Translate really took us over and we were doing really well for a couple of years. And we exited right at a time just before Google Translate, uh, you know, became much better and started automatically translating websites. And at that point, our business, you know, was basically gone. So we exited at the right time. But imagine a lot of companies aren't even able to develop that awareness until it's too late. And so right now it's a really, really important time. And so the insights I got from that interview, I was just like, wow, I could totally relate to it with my own experience as an entrepreneur, as an intrapreneur. And uh, just a lot of the things that he said I could relate to, just even things like being terrified of public speaking and just a lot of things that were just human, you know, like that innovation is uncomfortable and you have to be able to to be comfortable with being uncomfortable in order to make stuff happen. And sometimes people might not believe in your ideas, but uh, just keep going at it. And and sometimes those ideas are what really makes a big impact in the world and, and turn into a huge success. 
Wow. I mean, Salima, what you've shared really resonates with me. I mean, back when I was finishing undergrad college, I actually worked in transcription. I was transcribing uh, live audio recordings from doctors and from lawyers and from financial bankers on Wall Street. And it was all a manual process. And, you know, now we fast forward to 2020 and you look with, you know, the new Google Translate features with Google Mina and their chatbots. We see Amazon Transcribe and other software that can instantly convert audio to text. So industries are always being disrupted and they're always being changing. You know, one of the things that is so interesting is the concept future of work has been going around for the last few years. And it's almost like it's stale. It's like, are we there yet? Are we not there? Like, where are we? I mean, the future work is now, it's here. And I think it's important that we not only understand that, but we consider what are solutions we can do to be a part of that future work. I know earlier in our conversation, you mentioned the reskill revolution. We could start learning new technologies. We can have an innovation mindset. We can be a part of design thinking. But what else can we do to be part of the future of work? Yeah. So basically, my what I'm all about, like I have this this method called the Ripple Impact Method, and it starts with, um, you know, innovation starts with I. It's really about developing the self awareness and knowing who you are, knowing how you show up and how the world sees you. Oftentimes, the way we see ourselves is very different than the way others see us. And being able to receive that feedback from people, like asking people, like, how do I show up? Uh, what are ways I can improve? What are my growth areas? I think having that level of self-awareness is becoming increasingly important, especially with future of work. Uh, you know, we are in the future of work, like you said, and there are more skills needed around being able to understand people, understand humans, a lot of things that robots and machines just can't replace. And so really, really owning in on those people skills, emotional intelligence. And after, you know, developing that self-awareness, it becomes easier to empathize with other people. And empathy is another skill that's increasingly important. It's just one of those skills that if you don't have it, you should have empathy. Like I think it's one of the skills that if you don't have that, really work on that because that's something that is going to be more important. And uh, even in technical careers, and once you develop, you know, your self-awareness and your empathy, developing your resilience, being able to embrace failure and be okay with that and, and just be constantly learning because that ability to adapt to different situations, it's not about, you know, today things are changing very rapidly. Like people are switching careers rapidly, life changes, there's so many things happening in the world that being able to adapt to different situations is just going to be on the rise. Yeah, I want to dive deeper into both empathy and resilience. You know, looking at empathy, I see it all as human relationships. How do we humanize the future of work? How do we work well with each other? And, you know, the truth is every process is about human relationships. I mean, I even foresee in 2040 where there'll be robots everywhere, right? They'll be taking over the sky. We'll be having these flying drones. But, you know, look, we're still going to have people fixing these drones. We're still going to be having people maintaining control centers where there's massive surveillance. We're still going to be having people approving and moving processes forward. So there needs to be empathy, but not only with technology, but thinking, what is going on with the other person? You know, maybe they're having a hard week. Maybe, you know, something's going on. Coronavirus, right? So, you know, things could be happening and, and we need to be aware how we can empathize and, and show up for others. I think that's so important on the empathy side. But even beyond that, um, you know, empathy's been talked about, you know, LinkedIn said it's the most desirable skill in 2020 that you can show up for others and be empathetic. But the other one that you mentioned is resilience, and it's not talked about that much. 
You know, we don't talk much about, you know, how much resilience do you need? How long do you have to be resilient? What even is resilience? You know, I look at it as commitment, discipline, persistence, perseverance, all put together. But I also look at it as thinking outside the box, looking at the big picture. I think it goes back to design thinking. What's your take on resilience? Yeah. So resilience is really important for everyone to have. And when it comes to innovation, entrepreneurship, design thinking, it's that part where I, you know, oftentimes there's this book by Seth Godin that I really uh, enjoyed called The Dip. And it's about the time where you're hitting a a dip, you're hitting, uh, whether it's going rock bottom, and you're not sure whether you should let go, you should keep working at it, what to do. And it's almost like crisis mode. And that's happened to me. You know, I've been through a few of these periods where, you know, your life crashes and you have to figure out like how to react to that. And how do you want to actually be proactive so that you don't go that deep down rock bottom. But interestingly, I think that especially in, in the period of uh, ideation, so in design thinking, there's five steps. There's, uh, and that's according to Stanford, there's different, you know, there's different methods out there. But the main one is basically start with empathy and really understand uh, through storytelling, through journey mapping, through empathy mapping, really understanding who you're solving the problem for. And then you define the problem, which I said was really challenging because you have to really frame the problem and ask the right questions. And you can do that through, you know, how might we questions? There's a lot of, there's a lot on this. You should take a crash course on design thinking if you haven't already or or just get certified in it if you want to really use that skill. And then the third step is ideation. And ideation is where you're brainstorming ideas. And this is where you actually want to get out of groupthink. This doesn't necessarily happen in team meetings. And this is where I think the innovation starts with I is really important because you really have to be in that zone of creative flow. And here, like resilience is key because it's all about quantity and not necessarily quality of your ideas. And this is something that data scientists can actually incorporate in their work by going for the quantity and not necessarily the quality and not thinking linearly and just using divergent thinking and being able to think out of the box. And there's endless possibilities and let's not make any judgments yet. And that's where resilience is key because you need to be able to be okay that, you know, maybe this, this might fail. Um, it's all about then going from the ideation phase into prototyping and actually t- start testing some of those ideas and solutions. And then going back through the phase, the, the, the fifth step is test and going back through the iteration cycle where you're, whether you're going back to defining the problem again, or you're ideating. And I know I feel like I'm teaching design thinking right now, but you're really trying to iterate and failure is okay. Actually, failure is great because then you know that you can understand and learn from that and go back in the process and improve your solution. And so I think the resilience is important because you have to be okay with failure. And more and more companies are trying to adopt this uh, this culture where failure is okay. And I think it starts by having a, a psychologically safe environment. I absolutely agree with that. I mean, in uh, data science projects, when I work with students, I have a thing called the data science standards, which actually inspired my design thinking for data science. And in the data science standards, in that first step that you mentioned about defining the problem and ideating, I tell students, once you have a data set, don't just say, I have a question like, let me reduce churn, but go in depth, you know, write out as many questions as you can that you think are going to be relevant about the problem and the solution that you're trying to solve. And you know, if that's 20 questions and you end up only solving three of them, that's fine, but you've set up a pipeline of questions. You've gone through the brainstorming process and some of them may be relevant today or for a future project, or even you try solving one of the questions and you reach a dead end where you just cannot get the result you achieve, but the other questions are available for you so you can effectively solve something, right? Whether it's visualization, machine learning deployment. So I strongly encourage 
approach that for data scientists. And I imagine that's similar for all across fields. You know, I know we're spending a lot of time today on design thinking, but You know, I think everything here really goes back to digital transformation and the innovation economy. You know, in the past few weeks, uh, of course, we've been seeing how coronavirus has been taking over the world in many respects. But one of the biggest shifts we've been seeing has been actually very positive and reinforcing. If I could say there's one positive thing from the coronavirus, it has been enabling humans to work together again. It's been enabling human interactions where we're in these remote environments, whether it's software like Zoom or LinkedIn Live, we're again engaging with humans. We're getting out of our comfort zone and being willing to try new things on. What's your take on the positive side of the coronavirus, uh, Salima? Yeah, I think that it's really, and it's actually, you know, enabling us to, like you said, be more human and really understand what's going on in the world and developing that that global awareness, which is another insight that I got through my book interviews, is really understanding uh, what's going on with different cultures, with different people. Just yesterday, I had a scenario, something happened where I was walking into a building and met with someone and uh, they refused to shake my hand. I put my hand out and immediately. I was like, oh, like I had to check in with myself. I'm like, oh, I felt a bit offended. Like, why? don't they want to shake my hand? My hand's clean. (laughs) And it's interesting because I had to really think about, well, they did say, you know, there's a coronavirus. And so, you know, not shaking hands right now. And I was like, well, you know what? Don't take that personally. Like, it's okay. And maybe I don't know what that person has gone through. I don't know. Maybe their fears, their past, their experiences and where they're coming from, because it's definitely not the same life that I'm living. And so I'm a person that will generally still shake hands with people and I'll do that, but not necessarily everyone feels comfortable with that. And so that's something I had to really, uh, you know, check in with myself and develop that awareness of, hey, like, this is not, don't take this personally. This is, this is just what's going on right now. And I've never experienced that before here where someone refused to shake my hand. And so it was sort of like, oh, it, it really forced me to check in with myself. And I think these types of events that happen, you know, they really force us to look within ourselves, but also really understand what's going on in the world. It's incredible to think that it's not just about having some gloves, a face mask, and some Purell, but to realize everything is not about us. When we're rejected, it doesn't mean that we're being rejected, but there could be that circumstance out there. And it's how do you show up? I think it's even how you shared before about that adaptability quotient. You know, Are you willing to um, adapt? And in this innovation economy, I think there's going to be so much adaption. We have so many online tools that are used even in the data science workflow today. I mean, communication is no longer just email. We have software like Slack and Zoom. It's incredible to see how workflows have shifted. We even have new software for collaboration like Asana and Trello for workflow process management. And now we're moving into no-code and low-code environments with software like Airtable and Bubble. I wanted to take some time to shift the conversation to the no-code movement. It's been something that's been growing in popularity in the last few months. We see almost every other week a new startup coming out there with no-code and low-code. And it reminds me of the GeoCity days when we had Lisa Explains It All, when we had these HTML websites that you could click and drag and drop. And we've seen that with websites even more modernly with Squarespace and Wix and other platforms. But it goes to help me think that it's all about design thinking. You know, no-code solutions doesn't really mean no-code. There's code going on behind the scenes to modularize and make processes work. But just because you're not using React, you're not using JavaScript to build a website, 
it doesn't mean design thinking has left. It's ever more present. And I think that's so fascinating with these no-code solutions. You know, for yourself as someone who's in the industry doing a lot of innovation, what do you think about the no-code movement and if it's a resurgence or how it's going to impact design thinking? Yeah. So speaking about the no-code movement, it's interesting because I want to actually elaborate on an example. I was actually talking to the director of data science and innovation at Accenture. His name is Aaron Pujanandes. And uh, I was telling about this interview and I was like, you know, this is really, really interesting. The intersection of data science and design thinking. And we talked about, you know, just give me an example, like think about email spam and how long it would take to come up with the rules to categorize and filter out spam and how we've seen the evolution of, for example, Gmail. I don't know how many of you use um, the different filters, the automated filters, like the updates, promotion, social, et cetera, in your inbox. But it's interesting because it's like machines are getting faster, you know, through data science and machine learning. They're able to pick up things that we, you know, that we can. And uh, it's really interesting because a lot of these things on the back end, we're not able to really see them with our eyes, but we're all, we're the ones that are experiencing it. And so with design thinking, it's important to understand the experience that humans or your customers go through. And on the back end, you know, that a lot of the coding, a lot of that's already being automated. A lot of things are being replaced. The skill of coding, like it was a really, really big movement. And now it's sort of shifting this no code movement. And, and it's interesting how things are moving so quickly. So I think that as machines and, and, you know, bots and just coding is just like, there's a lot already happening where it's being automated and um, not necessarily, we don't have to do it as humans as much anymore. I think that's going to be on the rise, but I do think that the ability for people that are in technical fields uh, that are still doing the coding or working with the code or humanizing uh, what's going on with the code, I think that they need to have the skill of design thinking. Now, I don't think that they should be both a data scientist or a coder and a person or like a designer or a design thinking expert. I don't think that's, you know, you're going to end up being a not great example of either one. I think that you should be good at whatever you're doing. However, I think that ability to think in that way, like a designer, even just enough so that you can humanize the code or humanize data science. I think that that's, that's going to be increasingly important. I was actually talking to um, as well, another uh, data science leader, his name is Dimitri Adler. He's the founder of Data Society. And he was talking about this as well, that, you know, data science and design thinking really go hand in hand. And so it's important to understand from the design thinking perspective, how can we work with data science? Because I think that that's important as well for the field of design thinking. But I also think that more importantly, design thinking is going to be more and more important for data scientists. And so, so it goes hand in hand, but I think that it's going to be more important for data scientists to be able to embrace the design thinking mindset. Now, Salima, as you've mentioned, uh, you have a new book coming out and you've shared with us a little bit of some of the individuals you've spoken with, especially around business model canvas. I enjoy, you know, every few months I go to a hackathon, you know, I get to practice building products in 24 or 48 hours. And often when I work in these hackathons with teams of individuals, including designers and software engineers and data scientists and product managers, we put the business model canvas or even a lean model canvas in front of us and we directly use it to inform our decisions when we build a product. So it's amazing to see um, how it's translating across everywhere in society. But even you know beyond the business model canvas, you've mentioned you had over 100 interviews and conversations that have given you guidance and, and counsel as you've been building this new book. What are some of the other takeaways or hidden secrets you can share with us prior to your book launch? 
Yeah, so I had some interesting conversations around job crafting and uh, that with the future of work, going back to that conversation, it's just going to be more common for you to craft your own ideal job description since as workplaces are becoming more humane and try to really empathize and understand their talent, their employees in order to retain them. Being able to craft your own job is, I think, going to be on the rise. I think that being able to, you know, really understand what are the things that you can contribute, what are the things that you're good at, what are the things that you're passionate about, what does the world need, and what is the world willing to pay you for, which is basically Ikigai, if you've heard of that Japanese tool. I think owning in on that and finding your sweet spot is is going to be increasingly important. I also heard a lot of different insights around um, constant learning, uh, the ability to just constantly be in learning mode and going to conferences, absorbing content, stuff like this, like LinkedIn Lives or podcasts, just be constantly learning, reading, whatever it is. And there's ways that that's also becoming easier for us through apps like Blinkist. I'm a big fan of that. I use Blinkist for, you know, I still love reading books, but I think that Blinkist is a great tool to listen to, you know, summaries of books that I wouldn't otherwise purchase. And so, uh, so yeah, these types of things where you're just getting nuggets, like try to get at least one nugget per day and learn something new and make that part of your your routine. I think that's um, really important to stay up to date with the trends because it's so easy to just become obsolete in today's economy. Oh, you're absolutely right, Salima. I mean, it's amazing with so much information today from podcasts to articles to live streams. I mean, how do you even keep up with information? I mean, one thing I do that I found to be very successful and I recommend to all our listeners is I have a separate email box for all my newsletters that I subscribe to than the email box where I'm, you know, needing to send emails and correspondence for work and clients and and people who I'm mentoring. By having this separation of email boxes, for me, in my experience, has enabled me to stay focused and to make sure I'm accomplishing goals. And then I can check in on content without feeling as overwhelmed because I feel that we're having so much overwhelm and mental health challenges as a result of all this content. Anyway, that's one tool I found to be successful. What are some other tools that you mentioned Blinkist, but other tools that you found to be successful or strategies as we're moving into this future of work? Yeah. So another insight I guess I can share was with the future of work, uh, in one of my interviews, we talked about there's this rise of entrepreneurship. Like everyone wants to be an entrepreneur, not everyone, but more than ever before, a lot of people are trying to, you know, participate in the gig economy, be, be an entrepreneur. And even the concept of an entrepreneur has evolved so much. Like, what does it mean? There's like, you know, there's Instagram influencers, there's all sorts of, you know, there's social entrepreneurs, they're like gig workers, freelancers. There's just so many people out there trying to have that autonomy. There are a lot of companies as well that are you know, adjusting a lot of their policies and and, uh, their processes to attract and and give people, you know, the ability to work on a passion project like Google and their 20% rule, for example. But I think that with this rise of uh, entrepreneurship and especially social entrepreneurship, I think it's going to be really, really important to learn how to collaborate and figure out how do you really solve a problem together with other people, be able to embrace competition, work closely with your competitors, even if it's for a period of time for both of you to grow and learn from each other and leverage that partnership. I think that that's really important. I think it's, I see it as a challenge uh, that a lot of people are struggling to, and myself included, I've experienced, you know, how do you actually make this work? Because a lot of people are trying to grow their own babies. They're trying to do their own things. They're trying to build their own brands. I think at the end of the day, it's important to build your personal brand because at the end of the day, people will remember who you are 
what impact you had. How did you make someone feel? Not so much the words and, and everything else out there. Like you said, content right now, we're going through so much in the content world that it's hard to keep up. But focusing on the feeling and, and the impact, I think that that's important as well as figuring out how to collaborate with other people. Yeah, and I think that completely translates to the data science world as well. You know, for those who are practicing data scientists today, Kaggle has become the de facto platform where people go on to do these online hackathons and they're competing. And often you'll follow these hackathons on Kaggle and everyone will be stuck on the problem, trying to break through, trying to hide their code from each other. But then in the actual Kaggle competitions where people share their code, you see breakthroughs. Maybe someone took an algorithm them and they got that 1% increase and then everyone else starts implementing the code. So Kaggle lets you have both public and private information. But I, I've seen a lot of people who share and open source their public information, the code they're doing. It doesn't just give them benefits. It gives the whole platform benefits. And what Kaggle's done, which is so surprising, is they said, you know, every competition is winners. And typically the winners are those who perform the best. They get the highest level of performance on whatever the competition's looking for, machine learning usually. But he said, look, now winners are not just those who get the best results. They're people who share their code and help the most people. So you could actually be a Kaggle Grandmaster for having public code and open sourcing your information so everyone can learn and you can democratize the data science journey. I think that's so meaningful. And I think we've heard a lot about that today from yourself with your new book and for everything around design thinking, not only with data scientists, but the whole industry. When can we expect to see your book drop on the shelves? Yeah, so my book will be out in uh, at the end of summer, and so I'd say probably September is the release time. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of pre-launch efforts happening. We're doing a crowdfunding campaign. We're taking a really collaborative approach to it. Our team here is just really preparing in order to amplify our interviewees and uh, be really inclusive in the process of, of all of this. Since we're all about really building a community and delivering value, and so we're in the process of doing that right now. Well, I am looking forward for a first copy or an early copy preview of the book. Salima, thank you so much for joining us on the Humane Podcast. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Humane Podcast. What do you think? Did the show measure up to your thoughts on artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education? Listeners, I want to hear from you so that I can offer you the most relevant, trend-setting, and educational content on the market. You can reach me directly by email at david at humanepodcast.com. Remember to share this episode with a friend, subscribe, and leave a review on your preferred podcasting app, and tune in to more episodes of Humane. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.